0: Hey, this is Matt Markin, and it's time for episode 59 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Our guests include Sade Tramble from Kennesaw State University and Dr. Wendy Troxell from Nakata Center for Research. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media. That's Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome back, and if you're new, stick around. I hope you enjoy this episode, and there's plenty of past episodes to check out after this. Not sure if I mentioned this on a past episode. I think I only posted it on social media, but there is an Adventures in Advising song playlist on Spotify. It's a lot more of motivational, upbeat songs to help us through those tough days, and I'll include the link in the show notes. But you can open up Spotify and search for Adventures in Advising. Two options should show up, one for this podcast and one for the song playlist. And with that out of the way, let's go to interview number one for this episode. And that's with Shade Tramble from Kennesaw State University. So, next up, we'd like to introduce to the podcast, and that's Shade Tramble. And Shade is the current director of academic advising at Kennesaw State University in the Southern Polytechnic College of Engineering and Engineering Technology. She has lived all over the Southeast from receiving her bachelor's at the University of South Alabama to getting her master's in higher education and student affairs at the University of South Carolina. Her passion for academic advising ignited during her master's program, and Sade started her professional academic advising journey almost 12 years ago at Florida International University. Sade attended her first annual NACADA conference that same year. And after her time at FIU, she then moved to Georgia State University and currently is at Kennesaw State University. Shade became more involved with NACADA, volunteering and serving on the Region 4 Steering Committee as Georgia liaison, and currently as Region 4 Chair. She is working on her dissertation for her EDD in Higher Education Administration at the University of West Georgia. Sade has a commitment to student success initiatives that focus on recruiting, retaining, progressing, and graduating historically excluded students in the STEM fields. Shade, welcome to the podcast. Thanks,
1: Matt. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yes, I'm happy for you to be here too. I was glad that uh, when we talked about it uh, about a month ago, you were saying, hey, let's do it. Let's make this happen. So great to have you on. And so let's talk about you in advising and being in higher ed. What was your path, your journey getting to where you're at?
1: It was an interesting one. Honestly, I went to undergrad prepared to be a meteorology major. I went out of state to study meteorology. That's what I was going to do. And I changed my major my senior year to journalism and then decided to apply to master's programs in higher ed and student affairs. Um, And advising Some would say was probably always in my plan, but not always in Sade's front of her mind of her plan. (laughs) And so I ended up applying to um, a couple of uh, four different states, four different schools, again, all in the southeast and South Carolina was my number one. And when I went to all of my people who wrote my letters of rec for me for my master's programs, one of them was in undergraduate advising in South Alabama. And she was one of my like mentors in undergrad. And she, um, I went to thank her and tell her that I got into Auburn because all three of those who wrote my letters of rec were actually alumni from Auburn. And so I went to say, thank you. I got into Auburn. You know, I know it's where you graduated from. And then I told um, Nancy, I said, I really want to go to South Carolina though. (laughs) And I still haven't heard from them. And she goes, South Carolina, uh, I didn't know you applied there. She goes, I know the director of the program there. I'm going to send Jenny an email right now. And again, in my head, not putting things together. I don't know who Jenny is. Right. She's referring to Dr. Jennifer Bloom, who was the program director at that point. And she's like, I'm going to send her an email and let her know that you applied and that you're great. And she needs to let you in. And so Jenny reaches out to me a week later, calls me and says, You're in on our side. We're waiting on the graduate school. Let's talk about next steps. Let's get you a GA, all this stuff. I'm going to South Carolina, still have no idea who Jenny Bloom is. No idea. Mm-hmm. And it isn't until I get there and start in spring semester that I think some of the my cohort mates who like work with me in career services like explain to me, oh, you know, that's like who came up with appreciative advising. And I'm like, no. I did not know that. (laughs) So I studied under Jane Bloom at um, South Carolina. So again, had a mentor who was an advisor, Studying under Jane Bloom, still not putting together that advising is where I'm going to end up, but I'm applying for all of the jobs at the end of my program um, and advising being one of those. And it worked out that I got a senior academic advisor position at Florida International for my first position, and I have been in advising ever since.
0: <laughs> oh, that's an incredible story! You it know, it?
1: it's just so crazy.
0: And in a way, kind of goes full circle. You know, like you know, here you're, you have your mentor mentioning, "Just hey, I get know this person named Jenny. Mm-hmm. Okay, apparently Jenny might help me out." Then to find out that it's you know Jenny Bloom, and it's still kind of not knowing, and then figuring out, "Oh, this is okay. Appreciate yeah. advising." academic advising, higher ed, Nakata, and, yes. you know, now being a part of an organization that also Jenny is part exactly. of.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I see her at the conferences all the time.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. That is, that is awesome. That's what's up. And is this in your bio where you talk about, you know, that your passion for academic advising ignited during your master's program? Is this part of it or is there more, more for the story?
1: No, that, I mean, that was pretty much how i got into it and i've just i've just stayed in it and i've worked with a lot of different like programs within advising and i feel like something that's kept me in advising is i always am learning something different to make it you know interesting for you to want to stay at an institutional or in, you know at a college um and in advising because i'm just always learning new things and applying you know new right now it's a lot of research based stuff, because I'm working on my dissertation. Um, and I'm reading a lot of other research that's out there. And I'm like, oh, how can I apply this to what I'm interested in Too, you know, <laughs>
0: Right. Mm-hmm. no, and I, I think that's such a great point talking about um, that there's so much to do in advising, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's within an advising organization, or it's at, you know, let's say your own institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, climbing ladder wise, you know, you might end up hitting like a ceiling or something like, cause there might only be a certain amount of roles like for advisors. But I think of myself, like an office I work in, like our office works with like uh, our graduation pledge program, our undecided students, our academic probation students, you know, so there's so many different roles that, you know, Hey, if you get tired of one, you might mm-hmm. be able to then work with, with another uh, student population or another program. And it's still an advising, but it's still something new that you get to learn. So it's still fresh all the time.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's and that's kind of how I've been in my career with, uh, you know, starting as um, at FIU and was working mainly with um, undeclared students there. Um, And then at Georgia State, it was a little bit of undeclared at the beginning, but I eventually transitioned into uh, STEM populations like chemistry, Um, eventually ended up in fine arts and doing um, the art and music majors <laughs> and that one will definitely keep you on your toes. Um, if anybody has ever advised art and music majors, those are definitely the fun ones. Um, and then moving into like a managerial role at Georgia state too. And I moved to the two-year side of Georgia state perimeter college. And so mm. that where way you work with all of the majors on the two-year side, but knowing all of those different majors up to 60 credit hours and getting those students associate degrees again was a completely different experience than what I had had working on the four-year side at the Atlanta campus Um, and then coming here and doing engineering and engineering technology and learning about all of these majors and things I didn't know existed like robotics and mechatronics right yeah
0: But it's even like you're talking about music majors. I, the one experience I had was um, we usually during our orientations and we used to call them freshman advising days uh, back when I used to work in admissions years ago. And we used to do a presentation. So we had like these, like an advising portion of it. And then the faculty um, advisor would then speak on the major. So I go through my whole spiel going through like the, the standard PowerPoint that they gave us to go over. And then the music faculty then speaks and says, Forget everything that he just said, uh, because your major is very different. You know, he told you take GEs and some major requirements in your first year. We're going to flip that and do most of your music classes in your first couple of years. And I was like, okay, great.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is definitely different than (laughs) and that's kind of I mean, I guess when you think about it, which is weird now that you've said that, that makes me think of like, Yes, I did that for the art and music majors and it is their music classes with a little bit of, you know, general education thrown in. Um, but that's how it is for engineering and engineering technology too. Like yeah. it's it's their major classes and math and science which happen to fall in their general ed, but it's major classes and then we're throwing in, you know, those general education core requirements all throughout their four years while they're here.
0: Mhm. Yeah. And so before I forget, I, I did have a question in terms of uh, where was the, what started the interest in meteorology?
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure fire Ivy League admission ditch the old photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick we reveal all the latest loopholes so laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast
1: i just always loved the weather when I was in middle school and high school, like it was a long time dream to go and study meteorology um, from, I think it probably started with, you remember the NASA buses that used to go to your schools. And I think that was when I was in middle school, that bus came and one of the like positions that you could have on the bus was the meteorologist, (laughs) like watching the weather. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And just ever since then, Um, had thought that I would do that. And then um, I took dynamics and I changed my mind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you still have a semi-interest and you want to chat with someone at a conference, um, if you run into uh, David Travis from University of Wisconsin, River Falls, he's a provost and vice chancellor there. Yeah, he's big on weather. So. Oh,
1: that's awesome. Yeah. Yes. I, I'll, I love talking to other weather people. Like hurricanes are my favorite. I used to, that was something else I wanted to do was fly inside the eye of a hurricane. I thought that'd be the coolest thing, which terrified my mother. But
0: right. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine so. <laughs> like my daughter wants to do what? <laughs>
1: uh-huh. She's like, don't call me before you go in. Just call right. me when you're out after. <laughs> that's yes. what she used to say to me. <laughs>
0: Just want to make sure you're okay. Yep. (laughs) So how would you describe your your institution?
1: Um, Kennesaw State is striving to be the best R2 in the entire country, right? (laughs) So we were recently reclassified as R2 under the Carnegie classifications, and it is a growing um, institution right outside of metro Atlanta, a very, you know, diverse student population. I think we're to the point where we can almost be um, considered like a, you know, having the, that threshold of more minority students and having that minority serving institution uh, status. So it's a, it's fantastic school. It's doing all the right things we've gotten since I've been in this college, um, a master's, in um intelligent robotic systems and we now have a phd in interdisciplinary engineering which is fantastic
0: wow yeah yeah but i know we've had students that are interested in, in those and you yes. know, have to say well probably got a transfer somewhere else <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah we um definitely compete with georgia tech a lot obviously mm-hmm. for students um, and I, I when I first started here was had a population and was advising um, the mechatronics students and they would come to me and say that they want to transfer to Georgia Tech. And I would say, that's great. What are you going to major in there? Because they don't have like an exact mechatronics degree. It's like a concentration under mechanical engineering. So it's not exactly the same thing, whereas ours is a you will have a diploma degree in you know, robotics and mechatronics now. So um, it's one of, I think, what used to be, I think 11 programs, there might be 12 now, but like of 11 or 12 bachelor's programs in the country in mechatronics. So it's really cool.
0: Yeah, because okay, they've added one more, another school has it, but that's a small amount that has that major. So, yeah, that makes it really great. So, exactly. Yeah. And the
1: engineering technology, too, um, those typically are associate degrees, and we're one of a few colleges, too, that offer those as bachelor's degrees. Um, and they're very still competitive um, career opportunities for students in those. Um, and so we definitely, um, and our one is an online program, our one ET program is online. So they're all great programs. The faculty in this college are fantastic, the department chairs are great. Our dean has worked really hard to make this engineering and engineering technology college like one to be reckoned with, you know, in the state of Georgia for sure.
0: Well, now definitely, I know if I have anyone that might be interested in some of those, I mean, like, hey, you, you got to go <laughs> go to out, out outside of California for that, <laughs> but there's there's a, there's another institution that you may want to consider. So I'm going to jot that one down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're you're the director um, mm-hmm. of academic advising in 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 that college and that department. Uh, how would what would you say like your role entails as director?
1: Communication. From, you know, the university academic affairs um, to like my team and from like the college leadership to the team to um, and the team back to all of those people as well. You know, advising at Kennesaw is decentralized. Each college has their own advising office. I do meet with the other managers and directors um, once a month, but there's not a lot of uh, streamlining between the offices, though, um, and so, but we're working on that, and I'm hoping that we'll get some things streamlined across the board so that the advising experience can just be similar for all of the students, no matter where they go. But yes, I just do a lot of communicating with my team um, and hiring of a team because I have a very large team, so the expected amount of you know turnover for it um, occurs, and so. I have 12 advisors, t- two senior advisor transfer specialists, and then 10 academic advisors.
0: Nice. Yeah. So yeah, so pretty full plate with, with your role. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes. And then your with engineering, there's about eight different degrees or so. Mm-hmm. How do you help students like differentiate between those, especially if it's like they're in one and they're like, oh, but you have this other one. Hmm, I might be interested in that. How are you going about that with your students?
1: Yeah, so that's actually a little bit challenging right now because the students take like an intro class like for their major um, in their first semester. Like it's a a college, you know, intro to computer engineering or intro to industrial engineering technology. Right. And so um, so they learn a lot about it. And sometimes it comes a little bit later, that realization of, oh, I'm an M E T and I meant to be an Emmy, you know. Um, and so we're trying a couple of different things um this coming fall to help students with that knowledge. So um my boss, who is the associate dean in our college, is spearheading a project to do a one one engineering intro class right engineering and engineering technology intro class and so the course itself will occur in the fall and Then in the spring, the students will take like the lab kind of portion of it because our intro classes do have labs where students do a intro type project. Mechanical engineering does pumpkin launch. Um, Mechatronics, they build robots like in just the littler robots, you know, um, but they build that in their lab. So they all have like their little lab portion. Um, But the course itself is going to have all of the same material to where they can learn a little bit about each major and kind of help them make that decision during their first semester so then they know by the time they're taking that lab course oh i was eet but now i want to be electrical engineering and they take the correct lab course then in the next semester and that would satisfy their intro course credit hours on their um, degree plan so that's one way another way um the advisors are, the well-versed in all of the majors in the college and they have assigned populations under specific majors. um, But In training, they and then we do cross training um, every so often so that they're all up to date on all of the changes within the major programs. And they have a a basic knowledge and understanding of each of the majors in our college so they can explain to a student and show a student a different major under a different department or um, at least within our college. And then if it happens that a student changes outside of our college, um, it's a little bit more tricky because they're not cross-trained all that way with it being decentralized. So that's where referrals have to come in into other offices, but they work really well with advisors and other teams. And so they're able to make those referrals as needed for that.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, on the flip side, you might have students in in these programs that um, maybe they go through a few of these classes and they're Mm -hmm. not doing as well. You're trying to figure out like, is it the the class is it just the topic is it you know maybe changing the major how are you, what kind of conversation are you having with those students to kind of help them realize if this would still be the potential major to be in or if it's maybe switching to something else
1: right yeah i think it's just having a that conversation and asking the student like you know what's their ultimate goal and if Sometimes you, it's, it's a difficult conversation because you're having to try um, and explain how important math is, but they're not able to sometimes pass pre-calculus or calculus one. And if they're taking it for a third time or more, it's just this is a very math heavy major. So what can we go into that still interests you? that maybe doesn't have as much math and having them put that together sometimes with, you know, the engineering majors and the engineering technology, it's, they don't know the difference. And so we're trying to get those differences out in front of the students sooner rather than later so that they understand that the engineering majors are more theoretical and the engineering technology is more hands-on and actually building that theoretical model or theoretical idea that the engineering major came up with. And then you're going back to the engineering person saying, this doesn't work because of X, Y, Z, because we can't, you know, actually make that or put it together. Right. Um, But those students like showing them that the different uh, careers that they can go into, having them meet with their faculty mentors, having them meet with department chairs um, early on and just, explaining those differences um the engineering technology majors still require a couple you know calc one and calc two typically but they they don't require the more in-depth math courses that come afterwards like the engineering uh, majors do so having students see that you can still be an engineer i mean my um I like to give examples and so like my uncle has an engineering, he has electrical engineering technology degree from Mankato State, and he um works for Thermo Fisher in based out of Asheville and they have multiple locations um in the US and he is an engineer, he does engineering stuff and he makes decent money and it's like showing that and telling those kind of things to students so that they can see like you can have an et degree and if you work you know hard and show that you're knowledgeable still in these engineering you know theories and ideas like you can still do the work and get to those places as well you know
0: yeah no love it with the real world examples cuz mm-hmm. yeah students or i mean even as advisors i mean i have these assumptions that you know of what we think it might be and then now it's you know knowing okay there are these alternatives there's all these others you know opportunities that maybe we're not thinking about so kind of opening the eyes for for the students as well Mm -hmm. um Now, you also have this commitment to student success, but within mm-hmm. like recruiting, with retaining, with graduating, historically excluded students in the STEM fields. Now, mm-hmm. I guess based off your experience and research or, you know, at your institution or others that you know of, do you feel there's anything that institutions are doing right um, in helping to uh, get more students involved in STEM, mm-hmm. especially if they're historically, usually were historically excluded?
1: Right. Yes. um, I think there are some like student success programs that can be implemented to like help these groups of students, because they also tend to be the groups who don't have the higher SAT and ACT math scores or even high school GPAs, because maybe the high school that they went to, um, the instructors aren't it's you know, they have large classes and they're not able to invest as much into the students. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Anthony Jack's The Privileged Poor. Um, It's a fantastic book about the minority students that basically go to Harvard um, and get scholarships and the different racism, classism, things like that, that they that they experience while they're there. And so um, there's just more things that we can do programming wise to help introduce them to college, maybe um, in a summer success, you know, program um, introducing them early to a math course and to the instructors who do have the time to be invested in them. Right. Um, That's something that Georgia State does. They have a summer success academy um, that I worked with. I was uh, the advisor who worked with them and I had a counterpart that I worked closely with in student success who was the coordinator over like that program. Um, And that program had huge success numbers where those students are graduating in four years, just like every other student. And they come in under a variety of majors. But I think that you could tweak a program like that to be more you know, specific for STEM students. Um, and that is something that Kennesaw doesn't currently have right now is any kind of summer bridge program, uh, which I find found very interesting coming here because Georgia Southern is another school that um, you know, we're often compared with and they have a huge summer bridge program that they do down there. they've been doing it for years because my sister was part of it um, a long time ago. And so, and Georgia State's been doing theirs now since I think I helped start it the first year in 2011. So theirs has been a long time too. Um, so that's definitely, that's something that I'm, you know, I really care about is those success programs and you can, again, recruit those students to those programs and help them get that individualized, you know, attention that they need. And that kind of stuff helps with them in growing their sense of belonging, which is a really big part of them feeling like that they fit somewhere so that they can stay there and ultimately persist and retain to graduation.
0: Yeah. So at least, you know, there's, you know, like you've been when you talk with your engineering students, you're giving more examples. So if there's mm-hmm. institutions that are like, hey, we want to implement something. There's already other institutions that have been doing this for years mm-hmm. that they could hopefully model that, uh, with that. So that's really great. Yes. And then speaking of summer programs, um, you presented at Georgia State. There was a presentation that you did. Uh, called your success is our success admitting freshmen for an intrusive summer program. Mm-hmm. So can you talk more about that? Cause I think that one too, like that particular program you had also a learning community component as well. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. So that is the summer success Academy there. Uh-huh. Um, and we, they, at Georgia state, they admitted the students who were like right below their normal fall freshmen Threshold, right? They went to the the group right below them um, with the GPA and the SAT ACT scores, and they admitted them for the summer. Um, and they had it was more it was more intrusive with academic coaching and tutoring and advising, um, and the students took two classes along with their intro to you know Georgia State course, and then. And so they were in, like, kind of a community of those three classes kind of together. And then into the fall, when we um, registered them, they got to choose a couple of classes, again, together. And then they got to choose some classes outside to like meet other freshmen then that were coming in in the fall semester. But they already kind of had a leg up, you know, because they had already spent the summer. They all lived in housing together, too, unless they had an exception. They all lived in housing together and just really became a cohort and got to know each other really well. And again, the graduation rates, I don't know them exactly, but Georgia State, you know, keeps track of them. And for those that program specifically, I mean, it's helped retain those students a lot more with that intrusive coaching, um, advising. The tutoring, they'd have SI tutoring, um, that kind of stuff that they were all attending. And in some, some cases required to attend some of those things to help them, again, get their bearings, understand what they were getting into with college um, so that they could make smart decisions throughout the rest of their time there and ultimately graduate still in four years. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: You love listening to podcasts. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today.
0: Love it. Yeah. And I mean, you have like everything holistically for this student. You have um, so much involved in it that students get out of it. And so, you know, when you hear people talk about programs, they're like, yeah, it was a success, you know, but what really is success? And, you know, and was it really like, this is one where you really can say, yeah, this was successful. Mm -hmm. um, And with all that work that you put in, and it the data proves it. So Mm -hmm. and you know, seeing all these students get through the program and and graduate. So that is really awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about more of you and uh, things that you're doing, um, as well, in terms of your dissertation, Um, being a, you know, being a student as well. uh, What went into your decision with choosing higher ed administration, and then Mm -hmm. also making your choice of the of attending uh, University of West Georgia for your EDD.
1: Yes. um, I have had always said since my master's program, I was planning on getting a doctorate and I, you know, had lofty goals for myself, you know, way back in my (laughs) twenties that I'd have my doctorate by the time I was 30. And I hadn't even applied to programs by the time I was 30. Um, But I had decided uh, the, University System of Georgia has a really great thing called TAP, the tuition assistance program. Um, So you can get courses covered at other university system schools. Um, It doesn't have to be the one you work at, but any of the university system schools, you can get tuition covered up to a certain point um, tax free. And so I had, you know, looked around before, hadn't found anything um, that really interested me because I said, if I'm going to devote, you know, however many years to a doctorate. I want to love and be really happy with what I go with program wise, yeah. right? And I ha- couldn't find anything that I was interested in. But I went to the region conference um, in, in Ca- Callaway Gardens uh, a few years ago, and that was twenty, I think eighteen is when that was. And we, I went to a session that I think it was four people from the University of Georgia. They were four women who led this session and they talked about working full time and getting their doctorates. Um, And some of them were actually just getting their doctors like full time too, and just maybe doing GA stuff too. But they had such great experiences. They were all at UGA, but in like different programs. And they just really inspired me to be like, it's time. Like I have got to find the program and I've got to do it I need to go back and look and see what's out there. And so I went back out and searched all the USG schools I had looked at before. And West Georgia had posted that they were starting a brand new higher education administration EDD program that was completely online and TAP eligible. And I was just like, that's what I was waiting for. (laughs) And (laughs) the deadline to apply was April 1st, I think. And our conference was early March. I decided I was going to apply to this doctorate program in three weeks and also retake the GRE because my scores had expired by that point and I needed to retake the GRE. So I reached out to the program coordinator at the time and said, I know this is crazy. But I'm going to apply if I can have everything to you except for my GRE scores, because I looked at testing dates. Um, I said, if I can have all of it to you by the application deadline, except those scores, and I can get those to you a week later, will you consider me for admission for this coming fall? And he said, if you can get me everything except those, but those have to be to me by the next week, he was like, I will I will look at you for fall. And, and I did it. I got Jenny wrote me a letter of recommendation. Um, my current, my boss at the time wrote me one. We, I took the GRE on one Friday because the application I think was due on like a Monday or Tuesday. And I took the GRE that Friday. So I had my unofficial scores at the end. I did fine, you know, got at least the minimum of what I needed to apply to the program that they had, you know, advertised on the website. Um, I sent him my unofficial scores that afternoon and told him that the writing, you know, would come later the next week. And um, then I sent him the official, I think that it was literally Monday. I got the official score reports, sent it to him Monday, had everything else in. And it Tuesday, I got an email that said I got accepted (laughs) as part of the first cohort. Isn't that crazy? It was all like within a month.
0: (laughs) But I'm just thinking how many people, you know, would have done what you did in the sense of like, okay, I have three weeks mm-hmm. to try to get everything done. And some people might think to themselves, convince themselves like, oh, it's too soon. It's a right. sign. I shouldn't do right. it. I'll wait till next year. Right. You know, right. right. And then also the fact that you contacted them to ask like, hey, what if we have this scenario and I get mm-hmm. these scores in a week later? Like some would just probably look at the website and be like, oh, well, it says everything's due by this day. <laughs> okay another sign i'm gonna wait until the next year
1: yes yes (laughs) i did it all and i went to orientation Then i think what like a month and a half later then to meet Mm -hmm. all my new cohort mates um i've had we've had two well one graduated in the fall one is graduating this spring and another cohort person that i'm pretty close with have gotten close with him because he used to work here at Kennesaw. Um, and he is on track to graduate this fall. And I'm hoping to join him as well this fall.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Make it happen. Yes. I mean, you've been super proactive with everything. So I'm rooting for you for December.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Wow. I hope I hope so. We're right now trying to schedule my proposal defense. So that I can move to IRB and then data collection. So it's in between. We're in between semesters or almost in between semesters, and that's what's um, causing a little bit of a delay in that defense because of my committee and their, you know, faculty contracts and whatnot. But hopefully, I'll still be able to stay on track for December. I think it should be okay. My, I wanted to defend the whole dissertation um, in mid September before I leave for my graduation trip um, (laughs) that I've had planned (laughs) for a long time, like a year and a half. But um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to defend now by then, but I think my goal is still to have my part done with, you know, everything done on my side by the time I go on that trip so that then it's just kind of edits and then defense when I get back.
0: But yeah, it's it's kind of like you're saying, it's like this process and all these steps and then you have a committee and then making sure that they have time to, you know, review and, you know, mm-hmm. and like you're talking about like faculty contracts and all that. So, yes. uh, there are
1: yeah, a lot of pieces that move, move in this and have been pushed and moved for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I, I um I never knew I would cry so much as an adult until I started this doctorate <laughs> program. <laughs> And I know that probably scares people off from doing this. Like in the end, this is going to 100% be completely worth it. But if I'm being honest, there were a lot of tears throughout this journey.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel there were people listening. They're like all ready to go. They're like, this is great. I love hearing Chade's story. And then once you just talked about crying, they hit pause and they're like, okay, I'm not listening to this podcast interview anymore. I'm not going to do it.
1: (laughs) No, no, you should definitely do it because I, again, in the end, you know that it's going to be worth it. I think my research is honestly part of what really drives me um, and doing the research um, and and I've already got like a list of things I want to research after I finish this <laughs> and I never thought I would be that person that has like a list of things she wants to work on and research and do and, um, but yeah, it, it really has driven me to. Like explore new things, you know. Again, it's probably what keeps me interested still in advising, right? Because I'm not doing the same thing over and over. I'm always trying to improve upon our student success in the different ways that I am able to within the realm of advising and and student
0: success. You know, are you allowed to talk a little bit about uh, what your dissertation's on?
1: Yes. So um, the Current title of it is Where Have All the Black Girls Gone in the STEM Pipeline. It's um, a phenomenological study about the essence and lived experiences of black females and STEM majors at a PWI. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just interested to hear about their lived experiences and their STEM majors. Yeah. See what's helped make them successful. You know,
0: you put it all this work already. So like you're saying, it's going to be worth it. Mm hmm. And then you were mentioning, you know, a lot of these connections come from attending conferences and meeting yes. other people. And most recently, there was a Region Four conference. Yes. How was that?
1: It was great. It was fantastic. We um, didn't quite beat out your region for the most registered people. <laughs> we were so close. Uh, Three twenty-seven registered for the conference, which is fantastic. For again, coming out of you know pandemic. Um, basically going to endemic, right? And we're uh, 327 in Atlanta from all of the states. We had some people from, I think, South Carolina and Tennessee and Kentucky too who came to the conference. It was fantastic. Um, We had great uh, co-chairs here at Kennesaw State. And... Yeah, I, I, our uh, speakers were fantastic. We got a lot of good feedback about our um, keynote speakers, Melinda Anderson and uh, Michael Sansevero. Uh, he's at George State. Um, but, yeah, people took away so many things from both of them. They were fantastic. Um, it was my first, like, in-person planning experience of a region conference. Um It was very challenging, uh, but a really good learning experience all all together Um, and glad I don't have to plan another region conference because I am outgoing region chair.
0: I still got one more I got to do. And then I can be like, yep, I'm, I'm done.
1: Right? <laughs> you you know what I'm talking about. It's a lot. Like do, planning a region conference is a lot more. And you're doing the annual conference too. But I yeah. think you've now kind of seen the difference of what goes into them, right? Um, oh, yeah. And it's a lot more on the conference planning committee, right, for a region conference than it is for an annual conference. And so, I mean, they're both a lot because of scale wise, but, um, it's definitely different, a different experience. So I'm glad I had it. Like it, I feel fantastic about how it went. It was, it was a successful event. Um, but it is a little stressful. Um, but it's good for people who have that planning, you know, um, experience or want that planning experience. I think, I think that's really good for them to be able to get that through Nakata. Um, it's a fantastic thing to put on your resume and be able to take with you, um, into like future roles, uh, within advising or in higher education. Right.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, and it's like, as you know, we have, you know, you had your, uh, conference co-chairs for Region 4. I had mine for, for Region 9 and how great a job that they did mm-hmm. with it. Uh, but how many moving parts there is to it to where, yes. you know, we, we're we still in there, you know, kind of feel like we're also <laughs> co-chairs in a sense too. Exactly. You know, but yeah. And then to finally be at the very end and it's done. And then like the adrenaline finally like starts to shut down. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yes, I felt um, very guilty because I had asked uh, the one co-chair to do it a lo- long time ago. Right. And two years ago, it was maybe even longer than that ago. I'm not sure. And um, I asked her to chair it. And then we had talked like in region chair meetings and said, oh, we should have co-chairs. So then I went to her and I said, listen, you should ask a co-chair. Like I'm, you know, it's your conference. You pick the co-chair. I picked you, you pick your co-chair, you know. Um, And she picked, uh, you know, another director on campus. And at the time she was the same as me. We both started as managers over our units in advising. Um, She was in CSM and I was in uh, Spakeet. And so then she ended up, getting moved to like a new program and being an interim director of that after I had asked her to do this. Plus she had, it was Georgia liaison during this time too. And the entire like last six months, I felt so incredibly guilty for like asking her to do all these things Um, because she was so busy in like this new program that she got thrown into and became director of like the actual director of last year. Um, and I told her, I said, if I would have known all this was going to happen, I would not have asked you, <laughs> but she was fantastic about it. Yeah. Like she had a wedding planning background. So she had the experience and um, we had the times where it was doing my best to calm her down. When we got those stress- stressful yeah. situations, when we got like our AV bill of, $29,000. Uh, I mean, a quote, not a bill, yeah, but yeah. a quote. And we were like, what now? Because <laughs> that's, you know, two thirds of our entire conference budget. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um. So again, it's all very good experience. Um. And now she's like super thankful that it's over with because her life can go back to normal. And I will never ask her to do a thing again because <laughs> I feel that guilty. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I feel like sometimes uh, the conference co-chairs for Region Nine—they were looking at me anytime I was like, it was stressful times in terms of like, okay, we gotta, you know, we got the the AV quote or here's like the food quote. Yep. <laughs> you know, how much can you actually have? I'm like, hey, just create a wish list and then we're gonna go from there. But trust me, it'll all work out. That's and, and yep. they're like, how can you say that? And, and I'm like, trust me. Like, I, I had experience with the 2020 conference that it got canceled, but we got up to like a month before, <laughs> and right. so. I can tell you, it'll be fine. Don't worry. (laughs) That
1: was exactly the attitude I had, Matt, because I just said I was like, "Listen, at this point, the show has to go on. Like, we Mm -hmm. we're not canceling it, right? So it has to go on, and so we're gonna figure it out, and it's all gonna be okay, and it's all gonna work out." And that's I said the same thing. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay, Hannah. It's gonna be okay. (laughs) It's gonna be okay, Brittany. Both of them, you know.
0: And it was, and it was, it was better than anyone ever thought. So mm-hmm. it, it all worked out. And so you've talked a little, you know, through kind of this story, some of your involvement. Can you talk more about your involvement and how you got started in Nakata?
1: Yes, yes. Um, So I was at a region meeting in Minneapolis at the annual conference, right? And um, JJ, right, Joshua Johnson, Um, he was our region chair at the time. And so I walked up to him and I said, hey, I want to get involved. Like you're talking about, you know, doing all this, that and the other. So where should I start? And he was like, be on Hazel's committee for the awards committee. Right. Because Hazel was the awards chair at that point. And Hazel works at FIU. So I actually knew her, Hazel Hooker, Dr. Hazel Hooker. She works at FIU. So I had actually known her when I was in my time at FIU. Um, And so I just volunteered and helped review awards applications for the region conference for two years. That was how I just started volunteering doing that. And then Hazel, um, stepped down from the position. And at that point we had still some appointed positions and some elected positions, right. On the steering committee. Um, and so Brad was the, um, region chair at that point. And so he appointed me to awards coordinator. And so I did that for a two year stint. And then I decided to run for Georgia liaison, um, And so I did my first election elected position um, and ran against, I think like three other people. And I was like, there's no way, like I've been doing this for two years, barely know anyone. I'm not going to win this and that's okay. I'll find something else. I'll find my place. Right. And somehow Brad like contacted me. He was like, congrats, you got it. And I was like, how? (laughs) Um, But I guess it was meant for me to be in that position because I did the Georgia liaison for two years and ran for, region chair then, and here I am trying to figure out what my next step is um, in Nakata.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you probably have people asking you too, like, hey, what are you going to be doing? What is
1: it? Yes.
0: I don't know. I'll figure it out, and I'll let you know what I know. <laughs>
1: yes, yes.
0: <laughs> and it's- we're recording this in a Global Advising Week. Um, of course, yeah. this will be posted in, in the middle of this month, but is, you know, there's with Global Advising Week, there it's a global celebration honoring academic advising, academic advising professionals, you know, get to celebrate, acknowledge, thank folks. Is there anyone at your institution or anyone in Nakata that you want to shout out?
1: Oh, wow, where do I start? Okay, so JJ, I mean, he's fantastic and he is the reason that I am where I am. And so um, I am very thankful for not only his like connections through Nakata, but like his friendship because we are friends and um, talk on the phone every, you know, couple of weeks to catch up and that kind of thing. And we'll vis- go and visit each other outside of Nakata, you know? Um, so that's someone uh, who definitely deserves a lot of credit. I really like, you know, I have my Nakata group, right? <laughs> um, who I hang out with when we go to conferences and we actually have um, a chat on Facebook with a group of us. <laughs> um talking about our planning for like each, you know, annual and region conference. And um, we're already planning our excursions events for when we're in Portland. Um, we've been messaging about those. Um, so I'm thankful for all the people in that chat. There's about six or seven of us, so I'm not going to name all of them, but they know who they are. Um, and I think that's that we kept each other, honestly, very um, grounded during the pandemic. Right. So when we went into the pandemic and we were all in lockdown and at home for what we thought was going to be two weeks and it ended up being months. Right. Um, we started doing Zoom happy hours together at home. And I think that time together to just not only you know talk about the craziness that work was going on and how we were adjusting, but um, it was just great to connect with them you know, on a personal level to outside with everything that was going on. So, um, I'm very thankful for all of them. Um, I think probably my first, you know, director, uh, Charlie at FIU, he was the one who, you know, sent us to the annual conference in Orlando (laughs) all these years ago and was like, yeah, it's in Florida. Everybody go. Um, I, you know, if it weren't for him doing that, like, I wouldn't even know that what Nakata was before that, you know, because that was my first Nakata experience attending annual conference in Orlando, um, which will be back in Orlando next year. (laughs) So, again, kind of come full circle in another way, right? (laughs) A
0: 100%. Yeah. And if anyone has any questions or wants to connect with you uh, based off this interview, how can they reach out to you?
1: They can reach out to me um, in my email. I, um, it's S-T-R-A-M-B-L and the number one at kennesaw.edu, or connect with me on LinkedIn. I um, find myself checking LinkedIn more often. It's where I find actually a lot of articles that I want to read related to higher ed. oddly (laughs) Um, (laughs) there in Twitter. That's where I find those. Um, But yeah, either one of those ways is great.
0: All right. Sounds good. Now this has been a fantastic interview. Learned so much about you. You Yeah. We've (laughs) talked just briefly at conferences through social media. We see each other on zoom meetings a lot, but never really get to have that really in-depth conversation. So it's great getting to know you better and look forward to seeing you in Portland in October.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much for being part of this podcast, Shade. That was a fun interview. Thanks for your insight on working with engineering students, your role as director, your passion and work with student initiatives that focus on historically excluded students in the STEM fields, and your dissertation in higher ed administration. Best to you as you finish. Now on to our next interview, and Winnie Tang from UC Santa Cruz is back, but this time as a guest host as she interviews Dr. Wendy Troxell. Here we go. So it's time for another interview for Adventures in Advising. And let's welcome back Winnie Tang from UC Santa Cruz. Winnie, how have you been?
2: I have been doing very, very well, Matt. Thank you so much for inviting me back on the podcast. Um, it's uh, really, uh, it feels really different to be on this side um, of the table.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And for those who didn't catch Winnie's interview, you can check out episode four uh, 48 of the podcast, and that's titled Where Our Journey Takes Us. But Winnie, you're back on as a guest host this time. So I'm going to turn it over to you and to introduce our latest guest.
2: All right. Hello, podcast listeners. Um, as Matt mentioned, my name is Winnie Tang, uh, and I'm here to guest host um, the pod Adventures and Advising podcast with our very special guest today, Dr. Wendy Troxel. Uh, Wendy Troxel is the Director of the Nakata Center for Research at Kansas State University and is an Assistant Professor in the Department of uh, Special Education Counseling and Student Affairs. Uh, Wendy teaches courses in the Master's Program in Academic Advising, as well as the new PhD Program in Leadership in Academic Advising, where she currently serves as the Program Coordinator. And most importantly, I know Wendy because she is my uh, mentor in the Emerging Leaders Program. So I'm very grateful to get to spend some time with Wendy today. Um, Wendy, did I leave anything out? Did you want to add anything?
3: Not at all. Thanks for thanks for having me today. I'm excited to talk to you as always.
2: Yeah, of course. So I kind of just wanted to start out um, with maybe hopefully it'll be a slightly easier question. Um which is uh, basically, do you want to tell us about your journey into Nakata and Nakata leadership?
3: Wow, well, <clears throat> it goes back quite a few years. Um, I was, I think at the time I first was introduced to Nakata, I was director of assessment at uh, Illinois State University, and I was doing a lot of um, workshops and and institutes and seminars in the area of assessment and so I regularly went to a, another association's um, assessment institute and pretty much um, every year was was on the faculty area R- really had a good time it was uh, focused on first year programming and, and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and I was at dinner one night Um, with the rest of the faculty and I was sitting next to this man who I had never really met formally before and he was a fun a fun man a fun gentleman with a southern accent and we started talking about I had been at, at University of Alabama at Birmingham and uh, this man was from Georgia, mm-hmm. and so I quickly got to know Charlie Nutt, and mm-hmm. and he was he told me about Nakata. I had heard a bit about it, and and invited me to come to the next annual conference. And so, I went to the conference, and uh, he connected me to um, Josh Smith, uh, who was chair of the research committee at the time. And um, I kind of just sat in, um, as it was mm-hmm. my first conference. I didn't know anybody. And um, but they were very welcoming and open in their committee meetings. And so I just sat and listened Mm -hmm. and um, uh, eventually was invited to be a part of the research committee. Mm. So I was part of the research committee for a number of years and and helped, uh, especially, you know, with the areas that I was really interested in, which was teaching methods and, Mm -hmm. and research to to. Practitioners mm-hmm. and uh, got involved with the research symposium and and um, eventually was chair of the research committee mm-hmm. for a couple years um, and um, co-editor of the Nakata Journal. And then this mm-hmm. opportunity came up uh, for the new research center. At Nicata so I applied for the position and uh, was uh, just—it's been the the joy of my uh, academic career, really. Um, uh, uh, between that time, actually, I was on—I yeah. uh, was faculty member at, at Illinois State and, and teaching in those graduate programs as well. But um, yeah, kind of grew up through the administrative division and particularly mm-hmm. the research committee. But um, um, it's been—it's been a wonderful journey, and I've loved every minute of it.
2: Yeah, I love hearing that story because all of us take these really interesting pathways, um, through Nakata, through Nakata leadership. Um, you mentioned, um, that you, uh, you basically started in the research and assessment, um, realm of things. Um, can you share a little bit about what is it that you, I'm assuming that you love those things, which is why you've dedicated your career to it. So, would you like to share a little bit about like what you like about doing this kind of work? What is it about research and assessment that really draws you and inspires you to continue each day? Yeah, man. It. I mean, that's kind of a journey in in
3: in itself. And I started really early in my career in athletics administration, and you know, played sports in college, and um, was was in administration, compliance, NCAA stuff, and and event management. Worked for a Um, um, an athletic conference on the East Coast as assistant commissioner. And then I got a job at Dartmouth College um, as associate athletic director. And at at most of the Ivy League schools, if not all, um, athletics are a part of the the division of student life. Um, They're very much ingrained into the fabric of the institution. And there I got into, I was kind of the, the representative of the department to a, a number of really important student focused, um, groups like, um, the sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, committee that did programming and, and, uh, interventions, um, that work on, uh, an alcohol and other drug task force. And so, um, you, you know, and, and very much, uh, um, how the pressures of college affect students and, and how their decisions affect their success, and um, really got into kind of the the, the whole student um, kind of thing, and um, you know the, their academic pressures, their personal lives, what they bring, the diverse their diverse thought, how that is explored, uh, and then when my my husband was transferred to Birmingham, Alabama, with with his work, I needed to find a new. Position down there, and um, at an NCAA convention. This is kind of a long journey, but it makes sense. Um, I met the vice president for student affairs at uh, UAB, and she was thinking about starting an assessment program in the division of student affairs, and uh, kind of a research and assessment um, arm of of student affairs. And I was ready to get out of athletics at that point and into more of the just really the student experience. Um, stuff and so eventually I was hired um, at UAB as uh, director of research and assessment there and there's uh, student affairs um, and uh, was in a doctor my doctoral program uh, at the time and really just got interested in the outcomes of the student experience and so how what the evidence of um, everything that happens to them and everything they put into it what what does that evidence look like and it and I was a music major in college. And so I have kind of a creative uh, brain. And, and so, you know, thinking about not just data, not just numbers, but, but but what does it look like when a student is engaged? What does it look like when a program helps motivate um, a student? What are the outcomes of success for students, not just institutional metrics like retention and, and graduation rates, but um, and it really turned me kind of into a qualitative researcher because of the context behind the numbers and the context of of, of outcomes. And so I did that for a while, um, did that uh, for the six years that I was at uh, UAB and also was in the admissions world. And then I started thinking about belonging, thinking about connections between who we recruit from high schools, from community colleges, from Back from having taken a break as as an adult and come back and and how how does what a student brings to an institution map with what the institution has to offer, what the culture is of the institution. And so that got really interesting uh, to me, too, as as well as obviously the academic side. Well, we moved to. Um, Central Illinois, my husband um, got transferred there. And um, Illinois State University, I had gone to grad school, uh, got my master's there some years earlier. And they were opening a new position for university-wide um, assessment. And I was just finishing up my dissertation at the time and, and um, was really uh, just honored to get that position, which was part of the Center for Teaching and Learning. And so it wasn't Uh, It was separate from institutional research and so really got into academic assessment at that point as well. So kind of program assessment, how intended learning outcomes are are constructed and and developed. How can I help faculty kind of get what they have in their head down into some documentable um, form. from there, got on the faculty uh, within in the College of Education, uh, teaching those same kinds of things. So, what do I like about it? I like that the that the creative ways that we find evidence of whatever it is that we're looking for, and that that really requires a partnership uh, between the students as as really the ultimate uh, stakeholder, uh, faculty, staff, and helping people understand how important it is to have intention about the interventions that they uh, want to put in place and, and
2: know it when they see
3: it, when there's success in that.
2: Wendy, that is like such an amazing journey. Um, I've just, uh, even during our, our mentorship talks, um, I really just enjoy hearing about how you got to where you are. And it's been like an absolute inspiration, uh, which is my segue to actually um, seeing of inspiration Um, can you share with us um, a person or persons in your life that um, inspired you and taught you a little bit about leadership and like, who are they and like, what did they teach you? Wow. There are so many. I, I, I really, I, I grab quotes
3: from like, you know, listen and and I, and there are nuggets that, that people tell me one, one of them I've, I've mentioned um, is no longer with us, but she was the vice president for student affairs at UAB who really hired me um, and kind of launched me on my journey. And one of the things that she taught me, you know, vice presidents of anything at a university and deans and department chairs and directors of advising, um, they have so many things on their plate. There are so many different pressures coming at them. So many things to do, so many ideas to launch, uh, what do you stop, start, and continue? How do you connect them? Where are the controversies? And I asked her one time, "How does she keep it all straight?" You, you know, how does there's just so many, so much to do, and so many things coming at that, at her, and at at the, those positions. And and she, without kind of missing a beat, she told me there's always a thread. There are always threads that run through all of them, and if you can find the threads, what connects them all, then you can make sense of where they kind of fit in priority lists and, and next steps and what literature you need to, 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 to dig into um, and that kind of thing. And so rather than kind of thinking about things as separate tasks, which we tended, I'm a list maker, so I tend to um, make a lot of lists, but I try to, you know, make connected lists. And, and so Jenny Gald, her name was Jenny Gald, um, And so she was a great uh, leader uh, who taught me and let me in on the inside of things um, that that were really important to see as I was kind of growing uh, as a professional. Uh, my grandfather was a teacher, a uh, principal, and then eventually a superintendent of schools in DuPage County and in Northern Illinois. And um, he was also a farmer and a woodworker, and and so um, he he taught me about. How to balance life and work, and and how to uh, how to uh, bring compassion to the to the people that um, he was working with. Um, My father was a professor uh, and a music conductor, and he's he I still learn from him today uh, for sure. Um, Taught me a lot about how to bring kind of when you need to bring emotional energy when you br- need to bring intellectual energy and when you need to just do tasks and so kind of finding that balance and my mother who is no longer with us either she was she didn't go to college um, and so it was this really interesting diverse household i lived in with this you know from a family of educators on this side and really blue collar family on the other side but but my mom was a voracious reader, and and she read everything She it, back in the day they had book of the month club or something, and then so you know whoever, you, you, whatever parent or whoever was in there, it was it had these like stacks of books up on the you, you know up on the uh, on the thing, and and uh, so she was very creative and and uh, loved to read and loved to read to me, and uh, so those are just a few really important people. I, there are. Thousand others, uh, but I'll stop there.
2: Thank you so much. Um, I was uh, I was planning out questions to ask you today, and um, I'm going to deviate a little bit from my plan because I've heard you mentioned the word balance a couple of times, mm. um, which I think maybe we can uh, we can talk about because uh, you've described a lot of things that you do. Um, many of us out there probably are doing a lot of things, um, trying to juggle, you know, personal, professional, etc. Um, do you do you have like thoughts about that? Insight, advice, words of wisdom about how you maintain balance, how to maintain balance, things like that.
3: I man, I am not a role model in that. I say it's important, and I feel like I don't. I'm not very good at it uh, most of the time, but I do know when I'm out of balance, I guess. And, and that's not a, that's not a good feeling. And, you know, each of us knows how to kind of find, uh, find that level. Uh, Again, I, you know, I, I I am very much task oriented. I, you know, lists, the calendars, King and, and all of that. And I've just had to learn to build in, rest time and to build in, I, I need to look forward to something that is fun to get the things done that are, that are small F fun. So that, that are, <laughs> that are, that are professionally fun. And there's a lot of fun in, in the work that I do. But um, so there are some people and you have to kind of know yourself. Some people I have a friend who can't have she needs something not on her calendar even if it's a even if she don't want to put a fun thing on her calendar even because that's just another thing on her account for me I'm like if I know I'm gonna go play golf with my husband on a Saturday afternoon that helps me on Friday um, or if I'm gonna um, you know plan to take a walk or or see my kid or um, you, you know whatever then I have to kind of build that in so um I don't know. The pandemic's been tough for balance. I think, I, I think it's been tougher than ever the last two years because um, just the back to back to back. So, so building in just margins um, I've had to do, I've got this rule that, that I've not been able to get traction on. Maybe this will be the time it's um, if that every zoom meeting um, should end uh, at least five minutes before the top of the hour, if not seven or eight. Or ten, and it's because we tend to go back to back to back, and just oh, we've got one more minute left. So, um, anybody else want to give us a dissertation on the state of higher education? And blah blah blah. It's like no, let me go get a drink of water, or a cup of tea, or take a breath. So, let's proclaim it here and now: the rule that there should always be at least five minutes before um, the scheduled end of the meeting. That we just stop.
2: <laughs> I really appreciate that. I, I've also been trying to do that at my work. Um, although my my coworkers may not know about, about my plan. So <laughs> I have to communicate this to them as well. Yeah, I tell them right up front. Just so you
3: know, we're going, you know, we're going until 55 yeah. after the hour, whatever mm-hmm. time zone you're in, if not before. And if we're done, we're done. Let's just not fill up the time.
2: But
3: yeah, <laughs> There's a lot to do. Yes.
2: I appreciate you talking about that because I think it's a, it's very real. Um, wow. we want to avoid our burn, burning out and things like that. Um, I was going to transition to a different type of question. Um, you mentioned, uh, or in the bio, we, we talked about how you are, um, very involved in the PhD program, um, and leadership and advising at Kansas State University. Uh, can, uh, and I don't want to overlap with like any other podcast you may be doing to promote the, the PhD program, but can you talk a little bit about what, that program is like what's exciting about it. Um, yeah, just, yeah, things like that.
3: Uh, I'd love to. And I don't think there's any other okay. podcast where we talk about that. So yeah, you know, the, the graduate programs at, at Kansas state university with regard to academic advising have been running for a while, a uh, really important partnership between the college of education and the uh, for many, many years. Um, their certificate, program, you know, is is um, a 15-hour program um, that is post uh, you you know college uh, uh, program. Um, Really the foundational aspects of advising and and a lot of folks come into that um, either wanting to get to know more about advising or becoming an advisor. Or I was just talking to an associate dean a a few weeks ago who just moved to a different kind of part of her university. And now she she's oversees academic advising and she's enrolled in the certificate program to just learn more about uh, learn more about academic advising, um, how it's supposed to be, you know, really how it's supposed to be run. And so that was cool. And then the master's program has been going for quite some time now. um, And lots of of NACADA members in that and and others, some who just want that master's degree and they're already in advising, but many who are not yet in um, academic advising and uh, want to be, that might be high school guidance counselors or uh, some other role. And so they're, they're into that, but about, Three years ago, maybe four, we started probably five years ago, we started planning the new PhD program uh, within the, within the departments um, as a natural next step uh, for it. Dean Debbie Mercer has been really supportive, uh, chair of the department at the time, Ken Muey, um, really got it uh, birthed. And the rest of the faculty, uh, Christy Kraft, who's now the department chair of, of, of the department, uh, Doris, Dr. Doris Carroll, Dr. Lisa Rubin, who is uh, co-editor of the Dakota Journal, Dr. Craig McGill, who uh, many know, um, and Dr. Lydia Young, who's our um, statistician. And um, we collectively and, and in great collegial collaboration developed this PhD program. Our first cohort is about to take their last classes of, uh, in the summer. Uh, so we have 11 as a cohort based program. Uh, we have 11 uh, wonderful scholars, uh, practitioners who are in the program who are finishing out their coursework and they'll start in on preliminary exams and, doc- and dissertation uh, next year. We just brought in, in fact, last night, met with our brand new cohort. We start every two years. And so our new cohort members have been selected. And uh, we just met formally uh, last night and a few weeks ago. Um, They'll start their coursework in the summer. Um, It is, a, uh, as I said, a cohort program. And so um, they go seven semesters in a row, two courses a semester. So summer, fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, summer. Um, so they get done with coursework in a pretty quick amount of time. It's, it's pretty intensive. And, and then doing dissertations. But we have a, a wonderful uh, group uh, co- of cohort members that will announce officially uh, very soon from all kinds of institutions and all kinds of lenses. Um, and they dig deep into higher ed issues, obviously, and, and issues, Uh, really germane to academic advising and and particularly leadership of um, academic advising and um, related, you you know, related curriculum and spanning academic affairs, student affairs and that kind of thing. And they've got some amazing research ideas going. Some are publishing already. Um, So it's a lot of fun. So we'll start our next cohort. We'll start recruiting next year for the, for cohort three. <laughs> so if you want any more information, be sure to let me know because um, we have a lot of fun. It's a really, really good group.
2: So that actually is my, leads to my penultimate question, which is what are some, um, in your other role uh, as in the center of research, um, what are some exciting projects, uh, research projects that um, you all have been working on that uh, we can look forward to?
3: Oh, that's a great question. Um,
2: so, you know,
3: in in the research center, we, and I say we, it's it's me <laughs> and um, 50% of Elisa Schaefer, uh, but a number of other just really wonderful, uh, wonderful scholars and, and members who help with, with uh, projects. We've done a lot of professional development. We've got new e-tutorials, Research 101 e-tutorials. Uh, we think that's really important. Uh, the the Virtual Research Institute uh, will be uh, May 18th through 20. By the time we air, it might be too late to get in, but doesn't hurt to ask. Um, but the, but that's a lot of fun. But we've been working on a number of projects um, uh, that, are, uh, that are really coming to fruition now. Um, one is called Advising During COVID. You know, got to do it. So a research team from uh, Region 10 and I are doing this project. We've, we asked NACADA members uh, what was advising like, what is it like now, how are you transitioning, uh, we, what has worked, what is still a, a struggle, what does your institution expect of you, how are you doing assessment, how is the priorities have changed. And so we're, an, we're deep analyzing qualitative data right now, and we hope that, um, that report comes out this summer, uh, we hope, and then we're going to do a presentation on it at the annual conference. We just um, got the the word that we'll, we were selected for that. So that'll be an important study to just kind of hear the voices of others. It's, it serves as kind of a level setting. Um, some are really finding that they have been asked to be very creative and others are really struggling. I, I mean, I think everyone's struggling, but the extent to which the institution values academic advising has been really revealed uh, over this uh, last two years. Um, I'm doing a study on how academic advisors are supported, rewarded, to get involved with scholarship um, or or not, Um, how they they feel a, a part of a scholarly community or not. Um, at their institution, and so there's going to be a little um, survey that goes out to to get people to to respond to that kind of thing. Um, Another study that is about to launch uh, with two of the doctoral students in our cohort is about how academic advisors view their lanes when it comes to, to conversations about finances, about staying in school, not about financial aid regulations about how do I stay in school? How do I make school a priority? How do I pay for it? And and the extent to which advisors feel comfortable having those conversations with uh, with their students or not, um, how the institution provides professional development or not, and connected with that, how they talk about career planning. You know, there's, there's courses in your major but how do we talk about the decisions about um, kind of where they're headed with their uh, professional goals? So that study is going to launch. We have another study called um, my working title right now is the metrics of advising. Um, That one is, that one is a follow-up to the inconsistencies report that is um, on the website. Um, And that is, we say that academic advising influences student success, that we have an impact on student success, but we have very little evidence of that, quite frankly. And so, and we know from previous studies that under 50% of institutions actually require students to meet with an academic advisor, and of those you don't actually have to meet with an advisor always. And it's kind of the, it depends response that, that, that we get a lot. Well, if they're on probation, if they are in whatever, and if they, um, you know, are transferring or whatever. So the metrics project is, so how do you track your interactions with students? What can you claim as an intervention and what evidence do you have that you made any difference at all? Because a lot happens between that single 10-minute meeting to release a hold and persistence retention graduation rates, much less success in classes. But we tend to use grades, retention numbers, which is a binary, one or a zero, they stayed or they didn't, uh, and graduation rates as proxies for the learning things that we do in academic advising and when advising is more than releasing holds which we we hope it is and and this relational conversation that we have with students and this this uh more systematic way of interacting with them when you can go like hmm your face looks different today than it did last month what's going on with you and what's what's wrong and what can how can i help now we can start kind of documenting the influences, the interactions that we're having. So this study, we're really struggling with how to ask these questions, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, but we want to know how institutions are, are are kind of tracking their interventions, and then how can we connect that to um, success of students. Sometimes it's those one sentence, you know, I said something, it clicked. The student came back two years later and said, if you didn't say that thing, I was about ready to leave. Well, how do you how do you track that? And I don't want to I don't want to say that advising should be all evidence based. But if we're going to claim that we have an influence, then we have to have some kind of documentation. Two other projects I'll mention. Uh, one is um, this may be a little premature, but it's I don't think it is. Uh, we've been piloting for over two years now two major instruments, and uh, for institutions to eventually be able to use. Uh, one is called the Student Outcomes of Advising Survey. One's called the Faculty Staff Outcomes of Advising. These are paired instruments that can be done on a campus. Uh, we're piloting them um, the, the the newest versions now. And we have two institutions who are are using those. If you know the kinds of surveys that are out in the higher ed marketplace that kind of do this kind of annual, you sign up to be a part of it, and then you get results and you get dashboards and that kind of thing, that's what this is going to be. And we hope uh, within the next couple months to announce uh, a lot more information about how uh, institutions can do that. And we've got a number of paired items between what students say is uh, how how frequently they have particular kinds of conversations, and then how important is that to them? Um, paired with faculty staff, what faculty staff say, advisors say that they have the nature of those conversations, and is that important? So we can do some gap analysis with that. Um, so that's exciting. Um, the final one I will mention is going to be a common data set. For academic advising, academic advising at institutions. So where most surveys are individual responses, you know, I get the survey, here's what I feel, here's my perception, here's, here's my self-report, this will be an institutional response to what is academic advising on at your institution. Um, it will set up institutional profiles of uh, for that and um, you know do you have faculty advisors on your campus? Do you have a first year center where primary role advisors and then you move to the to the majors for example? What is academic advising on your campus? There'll be a single institutional response and then each year the idea is to update that profile. So not only are we going to be recruiting participants for various research projects um, we're also going to be recruiting kind of panels of experts to help to help us uh, kind of vet these instruments and and how things are worded and and kind of what's important, what isn't, because we've all got those surveys that take forty five or fifty minutes, and and that shouldn't it shouldn't take that. <laughs> so um, we uh, we're really interested in kind of more smaller, more focused. Um, studies. Um, so lots lots going on uh, in in the research center and, and lots more to come.
2: I was just going to say, like, Wendy, all these projects sound amazing and super exciting, and I can just feel that they're just going to um, really contribute to the professionalization of our field. Um, so I'm just really excited um, that all these things are going on. Um, my last question is, um, if listeners out there want to get in touch with you to learn more about what you just shared, um, how can they reach out to you?
3: Sure. My email address is W G Troxel, T-R-O-X E L at K S U, Kansas State University.edu.
0: Thanks, Wendy, for coming back on the podcast as a guest host. And thanks, Wendy, for chatting about K State's PhD program, your expertise in leadership and your insight on how you work in balancing your responsibilities. And please check out the Nakata Presents podcast as Wendy is hosting a series called Paging Doctor as she interviews various advising professionals about their time completing their doctoral programs. It's super interesting, so please check it out, and I'll include a link in the show notes, or you can go to the Nakata website and click on Podcasts. And we have yet again completed another episode, 59 so far. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms and follow us on social media pretty much everywhere at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. And if you want merch, check out our website, adventuresinadvising.com. Check back in a couple of weeks for episode 60. Take care and keep advising.
2: Careful.